In the year 1934, a young boy was playing with his kite when a UFO showed up, took him on board, and stole his kite. In exchange, he was given a box that made monkeys. But when he disowned the box and buried it in the wilderness, he thought it was the end of the story. But then the aliens returned. And then we traveled to Russia to take a look at a bizarre story. When a winter storm hit, the residents of Pokrov thought they would just have to bundle up and throw some extra logs on the fire. But then, insects from another world began falling from the sky. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. We got a ton of stuff to cover, so we're going to get started right away. First off, let's give a shout out to one of our newest Patreon supporters, flying in on a bumblebee a big giant bumblebee it's all furry and we can pet the bumblebee but first off christian christian is we're giving more applaud to the bumblebee christian's like what about me no we're applauding you christian for supporting the show but we do want to pet your big giant fuzzy bumblebee and we'll give christian a couple pets as well rub his little hair rub his little hair christian thank you so much for supporting the show you're going to be our captain our pilot this episode if you guys can't support the patreon or if you're not as fuzzy as a bee or if you're deadly allergic to bees and you're just like out of the room right now that's fine too just help spread the word about the show really really helps out a lot christian is giving us all a bunch of honey we can eat let's go ahead and we're not going to take the bee but we'll shrink him down and put him in our pocket all of our pockets he's a quantum bee Christian, I'm going to give you the keys to the Dead Rabbit Dreadnought. We're going to give you the battleship. We are leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command, and we are headed out to the Island Nation. Is it a nation? Is it a state? I'm not for sure. I could have totally researched it. It has nothing to do with the story, though. Puerto Rico. That's the Dreadnought cresting through the sea over giant waves. This is part two to yesterday's episode. It was a story that was recommended to me by Dragon Boy JGH. Goes by the name Cthulhu on YouTube. Longtime listener of the show. Thank you so much for recommending the story. If you didn't listen to yesterday's episode, that's fine. Brief overview, and I, it pretty much was summed up in the beginning. Boy's flying his kite. I'm going to make this as brief as possible. Boy flies kite. Kite and boy get abducted by a UFO. On board the UFO, there's a six-year-old girl who's an alien. It's not like another abductee and a man in a skin-tight green outfit. They trade. She actually steals the kite. She won't give it back, but they take the kite, and in return, he gets a box that can make three-foot-tall monkeys appear, which to me was a really, really good trade. But he gets so tired, he can't make the monkeys go back into the box. Monkeys are taking over portions of Puerto Rico, He is going crazy from seeing monkeys all over his house. He buries the box. That is the end of the story as far as most narratives go. Cthulhu actually found a book that continues the story. So thank you so much for doing additional research on this story. There's a book called UFOs in the E.T. Presence. It's by Fate Magazine. That's the publishing company. Fate Magazine's a very famous paranormal magazine. It's actually pretty good. They got some good articles in there. We've covered them before. But UFOs in the E.T. Presence is the book. It was edited by Rosemary Ellen Gooley. <laughs> I don't think that's how you pronounce it. She's actually a little creature living in a toilet. But <laughs> that aside, in 1934, that's when the story happened with Juan Rivera Filiberti, and he was in the town of Mayagaze. 
But now we're going to flash forward 20, 30 years later. He's married with children. And he's living in Sabana Grande. So he's hanging out and he's like, oh man, it's such a relaxing day. I had to move away because the monkeys took over that other town. And he's living, he wakes up breathing in the beautiful Puerto Rican air. (sighs) Smells so good. Not the whiff of a monkey in nose instead of in sight. But anyways, that's going to get edited out. He decides that he's like, that joke was so bad, I have to go on vacation. He decides, I'm not editing it out now. He decides to take his family to the beach. So the mom and I don't know how many kids, we'll just assume two. It just says he had children. So we'll just assume he has two kids, Kelly and Bud, and he's married to Peg. And they're going to leave Sabana Grande. They're going to the beach. So when they get to the beach, the family kind of splits up. They don't let the kids fend for themselves. They're like, you guys know how to swim, right? They're like little toddlers. But I should say the family splits in two. The mother and the kids are together. And Juan goes, you know what? I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go do my thing. I'm going to go catch some fish. They're like, we know what fishing is, Juan. You don't have to describe it to us. He's like, okay. So he goes to like a secluded part of the beach. And then... He looks, and appearing right in front of him is a beautiful woman. She's standing there in front of Juan, and he realizes, okay, this is an adult woman, but this used to be a little girl. That's how things work, right? Adult women used to be girls, but not just any girl. He doesn't say that every time he sees an adult woman, he's like, oh, oh, you, you, you used to be a girl, didn't you? And they're like, yeah. This was the girl he ran into on the UFO. He is now older, and he's seeing this six-year-old girl aged as well. She's now a beautiful adult woman. And she's standing in front of him, and he's in this secluded part of the beach. He's shocked. He hadn't seen this woman in decades. Like, two of them. Two, at least two decades. And then appearing next to her are two dudes. And he's like, dang it, I thought we were just going to have some alone time. These two dudes show up, and they're wearing the same skin-tight green clothes that he remembers one of the men wearing on his first journey on the UFO. So they're in this secluded part of the beach, and he's watching this beautiful woman materialize in front of him, and then he sees two dudes show up in green clothes, and he can't really process what's going on. Obviously, he has a leg up, because he knows these are aliens. He recognizes them. If this happened to us, it would be more shocking, but he's, he's like, yawn, dealt with the space apes. This is nothing, guys. But still, he has to process this for a bit because he hasn't seen any of these weirdos for about 20 years. Then instantly, the woman is completely nude. So things just got real. Things just got real for Juan. He's kind of looking over. He's like making sure that no one else can see him. He's like, uh, okay, this is weird. Now he said she didn't say anything at all, but I could tell she wanted to have sex. She was giving off this sexual energy that she wanted me right then and there. He said that she was actually different than a normal human woman. He said that her boobs appeared lower on the body. So not like they were saggy, but they actually started lower down on the torso. And this is a a change of times, right? Because this story, the first story happened in 1934. This is maybe like 20, 25 years later. So we're talking 1950s, 1960. He says there were two things that made him realize this wasn't a human woman. One, her boobs were farther down on her body. (laughs) That's a pretty dead giveaway, right? The second one is she had no pubic hair. And he's like, oh my god, that's so disgusting. Where's your pubic hair? Nowadays, it's like that is 
that's you see that a lot. You see that a lot nowadays. Ugh. But back then it was alien. Back then you would straight up be considered an alien if you were an adult woman with no pubic hair. Be lucky if you didn't have a file in Project Blue Book on you. So he's like, this, this, this monstrosity, this alien being has no pubic hair. What's going on? But she's absolutely stunning, right? She's super gorgeous. She's naked. And he's getting the sensation from her that they want to have sex. He's getting his own sensation that he wants to have sex. But he is married. And he's, it's funny because here's the thing. He's married, but he says, I didn't want to get caught. (laughs) It wasn't the fact that he didn't want to break his wedding vows. It was the fact that he was afraid that he was going to get caught because he wasn't he wasn't an isolated part of the beach, but at any point someone's beach ball could come bouncing by and someone run in and go to grab it and he's banging this alien woman. So he resists. He resists because he doesn't want to get caught. But how much could you resist a beautiful alien babe? So he gives up halfway through and he does bang this chick. Now, he says they had sex four times. Or as I like to call it, a typical Thursday night. They had sex four times, and he said each time. Not that I'm having sex with one. <laughs> I'm not having sex with one. But I'm supposed to joke about my own prowess. You can't... Juan's <laughs> like, see you later, Jason. I'm like, see you next Thursday. He said that each time they had sex, his recovery time was quicker. So the first time they have sex, he was able to get it back up. Christian's like, great, I'm glad I'm on this episode where you go into scientific descriptions about Juan's prowess and you made a bizarre joke about you banging him too. He said that the first time he had sex, he recovered pretty quickly. Each time he would recover quicker and each time he would have more energy. He'd like bang her harder. It was like perpetual energy. The more he did it, the stronger he got. I don't know what perpetual, (laughs) I don't know what perpetual energy is, but it might have something to do with banging aliens. After he had banged this chick four times, she disappeared. Which would be hilarious if he was in the middle of doing it the fourth time and she's fading away. He's like, no, no, no. Please, let me finish. Let me finish. But they have sex four times and then she vanishes. I don't know if she like put her clothes back on and said, don't call me, I'll call you. If she dematerialized while he was trying to get one last time in. Who knows? But she left. And then he just went back to the beach and sat down next to his wife and kids. And probably probably was so full of energy, he's like running around. He's like, come on, kids, let's play Frisbee and Hacky Sack at the same time. They're like, whoa, Dad, chill out. But we don't know. We don't know if he gained superpowers. We do know this. He returned to that spot several times over the years. He tells his wife, hey, I'm going to go fishing. I'm totally not going to bang an alien. She's like, what? You had that last part. He's like, I don't know. And he would go out there and he would sit there for a while waiting for her to show back up. He never saw the woman again. But that's actually only half true. In 1995, so at this point he's probably like 67, 68. In 1995, Juan wakes up and he's walking around his house and it's three in the morning. There's a gentle Puerto Rican breeze outside the house. He looks out the window and he sees in the darkness of the morning the little girl who stole his kite, the six-year-old version of that alien, standing outside in the darkness, looking back at him. So that's kind of a creepy ending, honestly. And it makes you think, clones? Is it time travel? 
Did the woman tra- is the woman sometimes a little girl like traveling through time? Was it a hybrid? Was that like his child? Did his child look just like the woman he had the child with? Because sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes you have kids with people and they look exactly like one of the parents and nothing like the other one. I don't know. I don't have kids or observe kids in any way. I've never seen one in real life. And also, any kid standing outside your house at three in the morning is just spooky. They could be out there. They could be out there going, help, help, I'm lost. And that's spooky for them, but it's still spooky for me. And if I ever see a kid out at night, I will assume you are a ghost. You will get no, <laughs> you will get no help from me, young man or young woman. Christian, let's go ahead and give you the keys to the carpenter copter. We are leaving behind Puerto Rico. There's a bunch of kids going, help, help, we're lost. We're like, you're too spooky. We can't help you. We're flying away in the carpenter copter. Take us on out to Russia. <laughs> Specifically, we're headed to a little town known as Pokrov. That's in Rezhev in Russia. It is October 17th, 1827. So super old-timey. So let's put on our old-timey clothes. I'm dressed up like Tom Sawyer. I know that. <laughs> I meant to say, who's the kid? Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist. He's like the poor orphan boy. But I'm going to be <laughs> Gummo USA. USA blowing her cover. I'm dressed up as Tom Sawyer. We're walking around. Everyone's like, what? I'm like, who wants their fence painted? Everyone's like, shaking their head. Uh, that's the only thing. That's literally the only thing I know from that book. And that might even be in Huck Finn. I'm not entirely for sure. I never read either of them. But while we're in Pokrov, while I'm discussing American literature that I haven't read, we're in Pokrov, Russia. And all of a sudden, it starts to snow. The snow is furious this time. <sighs> So much snow, I had to stop and take a breath to make the sound effect. But, you know, they're used to this type of snow in Pokerov. It's a little bit heavier than normal. But still, it's Russia. What are you going to do? But then, people started to notice something. Little insects are crawling across the snow. Hey, Joe, come here, come here. Look at this, one of the Russian guys says. He goes, look, look at this. Nom, 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 nom. He's not eating it. He's not eating it. That's the sound of the bug. The bug is moving through the snow. And Joe's like, what in the world is that? I've seen a lot of insects in my life. I've grown up here, so I know all the insects. I know all of them. I know all the insects around. I've never seen something like that. It was one and one-third inches long. It had a flat, shiny head, had antennae, and little whiskers. I don't know if they were breaking out their magnifying glasses, but you can see little whiskers on these bugs. Each side had three legs. And it was like crawling through the snow. And along their back, there was a stripe that looked like black velvet. Now, it wasn't just one. It wasn't just some guy found this, like the Fiji mermaid. It was like, I found this. They're like, you made it, didn't you? And he's like, that's what I meant to say. I made it. There were a ton of these bugs. And they came with that snowfall. And these bugs... No one recognized them in the area. So that's one tip-off that maybe these got swirled up in some sort of whirlwind. Because we'll see that. We'll see whales appear in the middle of Brazil. Or we'll see fish rain down in the middle of Idaho. But people can't figure out what these bugs are. These insects loved the snow. Now, while there are bugs that do enjoy the snow, (laughs) they're building little bug snowmen. These aren't known to be one of those types of bugs. 
So there's not a lot of bugs that enjoy the snow, but there are some of them. But these bugs, people couldn't figure out what they were. They didn't recognize them. And the way they moved through the snow made you think they were actually acclimated to super cold weather. And we're talking below freezing. Some of these insects actually came down in chunks of ice. And when people in the area would pick them up, you could look inside this chunk of ice and you would see the bug inside of it. So you figure, okay, that makes sense. A whirlwind will pick up a bunch of bugs someplace, take them up into the atmosphere, and drop them off in another location. And that's how you have, like, rain of fish or rain of chunks of meat. But when they looked at these chunks of ice, the bug inside of it was moving. Like, what? how, how is that possible? It would have gotten frozen. And this bug was able, when, when ice froze around it, was able to dig a hole in the ice, and would make a little home for it. It wouldn't try to break out of the ice. It would just kind of spin around in the ice itself. The world's original fidget spinner. So these were used to the ice. It wasn't a bug that got sucked up and turned into ice and then froze. They liked the cold. Immediately when landing on the ground during the snowstorm, they would begin to look for plants, or they would find nearby trees and hide in the holes and begin to nest in there. People began to take these bugs as samples because they were super curious about them. First off, it's going to interfere with the harvest. Are these things dangerous? So they began to take samples of them. Some of them scooped them up in a bucket of ice. And even though the temperatures dropped to eight below, they're still just hanging out there. These bugs are just crawling over this frozen bucket. But when these bugs were brought into a warm environment, they died within minutes. And that was the end of it. That's the end of the narrative of, of what's known as the Pokroff insects. But it's really just the beginning of the mystery. I found this story on the Fordian map. But I actually found out who created the Fordian map. It's a guy named Thomas Morgan. I was researching some other story and his name popped up. And he's just like us. He just really loves paranormal stuff. Just like we do with this show. He decided to create a map that catalogs all this stuff. Seems like a really cool guy. I actually I briefly talked to him through email. He's done guest appearances on podcasts, on a Bigfoot podcast. He just really loves this stuff. That map's been a really cool tool. So thank you, Thomas, if you're listening. So using that map, that's how I found out about this. I, was, I dug a little bit deeper into this. This is a legit story. This isn't a rumor. This isn't something that the people of Pokerov just said that happened. This was actually cataloged in the Edinburgh Journal of Science, Volume 5. It was published in 1828. And they got it from the Journal de St. Petersburg, number 141, that was published in November 14th, 1827. So these bugs were cataloged. The one, the Journal of St. Petersburg, was actually published a month after this event. So this isn't something like The Man from Torred, where we have decades passing between the actual event and it being reported. It was reported almost immediately in scientific journals. Apparently, some of these bugs were sent out to be analyzed, and people could not identify the bug. So that doesn't necessarily mean, like I said in the intro, that the bug is from another world. We'll get to that in a second. But Now, just because they couldn't identify the bug in 1827-1828 doesn't mean someone couldn't identify the bug now. Maybe deep in the snow bug archives, there's a photo of one of these guys, and they can match it up to something from another part of Eurasia. They go, oh, this is a Mongolian snow bug. There's no way they would have known what this was in this part of Russia in this year. But as far as we can tell, this bug has not been identified even today. And it would be hard to identify it today unless you had an actual specimen of it. But if they were dying off so quickly, this is, what, almost 200 years old at this point, this story. 
the few bugs that were sent off to be analyzed, are those little carcasses still around? Now, that's the scientific questions we have about it, but let's put on our conspiracy caps for a second, because I find this story absolutely terrifying. The reason why the Pokorof insect story actually disturbs me a little bit, the reason why I'm going to sleep, sleep with a nightlight tonight and a mosquito net over my bed, is because of the implications of the story. Let's break this down real quick. Conspiracy caps fully on. One, we talk a lot about portals on this show, gateways to alternate universes, parallel universes, and people disappearing into those. People go walking in the woods, they're never seen again. Did they get teleported to an alternate reality? We cover that a lot of times on this show. There's always that idea that if we're able to go through those portals, then shouldn't something else be able to come out? The answer, I would assume, is yes. But when we travel, for all we know, when people go into these alternate realities, they go to a place where it's inhospitable to human life. They die almost instantly. They're either torched by intense heat, they suffocate, they drown in an endless ocean. And on the flip side, when these portals open up and something travels from that world into ours, it also dies almost instantly. But you have to imagine, in these portals, there would be some that would allow a transfer that is able to make the person survive in the other reality. But even then, let's say that a portal opens up in a desert world that has oxygen, has the right amount of nutrients and things for a life to grow that would survive on Earth, but this desert creature finds itself at the bottom of the Marinara Trench. Mariana Trench is what I meant to say. The marinara trench is delicious, by the way. But this one, the Pokorov insects, was the perfect match. These unidentified insects came from a dimension of ice and snow, and it fell into a region full of ice and snow. And so they survived their normal life cycle. They didn't have the food that they needed, but they were able to walk around long enough to be identified. That, that's terrifying to me. Because you look at the story, it's a very famous story. It's not even a story, it's actual fact, it's true. There was a farmer in Australia who wanted to just for fun hunt rabbits. So he had about 25, 30 rabbits sent over to his farm in Australia. Within 10 years, the population of rabbits became so large, you could kill 2 million of them in a year. And it wouldn't put any dent in the population explosion. They were just outbreeding everything. And they've become an invasive species in Australia. People hunt them now. And they actually, the fur trade, the rabbit fur trade is really booming in Australia. But environmentally, it's an invasive species. What happens when an invasive species that can outbreed humans just drops into the middle of our cities? And I'm not even saying it has to be like giant man-eating bugs from a sci-fi channel movie. I, I think it's even worse if they're not that. If they're just insects. There are these things that are about two inches long, they're flat, they're black, and they have a brown stripe going across the legs. That's it. It's this tiny little guy. They don't eat your flesh, they don't spew hot lava, they just exist. And they outbreed everything else. To me, that's far more frightening than an alien fleet coming in. Because, yeah, an alien fleet comes in, when that hammer drops and that war starts, it's going to be really rough for humanity. It's going to be a really, really rough time. Those first couple days are going to be atrocious, the amount of casualties that humans take. But we can fight back. We can outthink them. 
We can outgun them. We can convince some of them to join our side. We can steal their technology and use it against them. We can negotiate. At the very least, we could sue for peace. But you can't do anything like that with insects. And these insects from another world, that eight of them came through some portal one day in the middle of Michigan in a farmhouse and just begin to lay eggs. You can't gas them. You step on them. They shrug it off. They're even stronger than a cockroach. They begin to eat cockroaches. They don't harm humans, but they begin to destroy our food systems. They don't pose any physical threat to us, but we start to see our farms getting devoured, and we start to see the spiders and the bees and the flies disappear as these insects devour all other insect life. That's far more terrifying to me than staring down a laser pistol of a gray alien. To look out my window and see nothing but scuttling shells crawling across what was once a city full of life. It didn't take an alien invasion planned from four star systems away. It just took a fluke. A fluke between worlds, a portal opening up. And enough of one species to fall through and land in a habitat where they could outbreed and outfeed all of its competitors. I would much rather spend my last moments as an alien slave in a starship floating around Rigel 7. I would rather that happen than to die in a mansion on Earth in a world that has been completely devoured by mindless insects. These insects completely destroyed the ecosystem. They devoured the bottom of the food chain to the point that nothing else on Earth has anything to eat. After all the livestock has been killed, after we have turned to our pets, after the jungles and the zoos have been emptied, all that's left is the humans and the bugs. We starve to death. The insects rule the planet. And until the insects themselves starve to death, the only sounds left on the planet Earth will be the sounds of scuttling insects searching for one final meal. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. And I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.